Well, my name is Pastor John, and uh, I am the pastor at New Life Church Gladstone, and it is my privilege to be here with you guys today. So this is the third time I'm going to be preaching this sermon, so hopefully I figured it out by now. <laughs> but I do have to say the last two weeks have been pretty amazing because uh, I started the sermon off with an absolute softball, easy thing. I did a children's lesson where I'd have all the kids come up to the front and I'd give them all a treat. I'd give them all a little butterfly just like this. Tim, did you want that? Okay. Um, see me after service. Um, so I, I passed out all these monarch butterflies to the kids and then I'd tell them, I'd say, do you guys know where these came from? And I would hold up a little thing, bit of pipe cleaner, which I hear is not called pipe cleaner anymore. It has another name. At least it was at Michael's when I had to try to find it. And so I'd say, hey, you know, there were these little caterpillars like this. And how ridiculous would it be to be a caterpillar or be a butterfly and long for being a caterpillar? And I'd talk to the kids and they'd say cute stuff and I'd be charming and I'd win you all over to my, uh, to my sermon by showing you the analogy of a butterfly. Well, I don't have that. Obviously, now I've kind of explained part of it. But I do want to tell you, there, there was a youth pastor, though, that took this a little more intense and he decided, since it was the first time he was going to be teaching in a service, that instead of talking about the butterfly in first person, he was going to talk about it in first butterfly. And so he decided it was a good idea for the children's service to dress up like a full-size butterfly. And so he got himself in all like spandex, one of those full spandex green suits, and he had antenna, and he put eyeballs on and had somebody make him some really big wings. Now, that just sounds kind of ridiculous because it looks ridiculous. And thankfully for him, there was no YouTube, and there were no cameras in the audience. But uh, the point of it was he stood up and he showed how grandiose and how beautiful this butterfly was. And how ridiculous would it be to long to go back to a caterpillar that crawls on its belly? that most caterpillars, 95% of them, get eaten before they grow into butterflies, which is why the butterflies lay about 300 eggs, to choose to be one of these caterpillars. Now, they're still magnificent. God made them. They're phenomenal. Some of the defense mechanisms and some of the things that caterpillars have are just amazing, but you're crawling around on your belly. You're, you're in the dirt compared to the butterfly that can soar higher than the tallest, the tallest building a human has ever made, can go faster than humans, most of us, except for those Olympians, can run, can fly 3,000 miles without stopping. Pretty amazing to think about. But yet, does the butterfly long to go back to being that caterpillar? And I think the answer would be no. So the youth pastor's message was, we as believers are like that butterfly. We've been transformed into something amazing. Let's not long to go back to crawling on our bellies like the other caterpillars. So that, that was my lesson to the kids. I've adapted it to you guys, so there you go. And I'm, I'm not going to wear an outfit, so um, there we go. So as you know, if you've been here the last couple weeks, we have been talking about our church covenant. This is a, a, a document that we have as a part of our church documents, and it, it's all about what, how we interact and how we are with each other. We do have a mission statement, and we, every year in August, right before school starts, we, we try to remind ourselves of that, uh, just like the kids who are going, oh my goodness, I have to do math in a week. Um, we are wanting to remind ourselves and reorient ourselves back to 
the, the covenant, the agreement, the plan, the mission that we have as a church. So here is our mission statement as a church. Engaging people disconnected from God so that they delight themselves in Him through Jesus. So every year we do some sort of kind of analysis of this mission. This year, however, coming out of what we've been through in the last 18 months and what we're still going through, um, our personal relationships have been strained. We've had a hard time getting along. Uh, Not just us as a church, but our nation, our world has had a hard time with that. And so we as a pastoral staff decided we wanted to do something about how we relate to each other, and it just so happens that in our covenant, we have that. We have a document, and this is the third week in a row we've talked about the different ways that we interact. Two weeks ago, you had Pastor Scott talking, and then this last week you had Travis, and now you have me. And then next week, when we meet at the park, down here at Willamette Park, we'll have our final lesson on that. And this is not something that's unique to new life. This is, all this is, is we've taken what the New Testament teaches and we've just put it in kind of some modern language and kind of formatted it differently. So if you're a member here at New Life, this is something you've agreed to. You took the New to New Life class, you, you, you signed the membership covenant, you were interviewed, you were brought into community here at New Life. And so you've agreed to this. Those of you that are not members and you're attending or you're guests, this is what you need to have with a church body somewhere. Because churches like this, this is just part of the church body that's throughout the world. Whether it's in Afghanistan, or whether it's in Indonesia, or whether it's here in West Lynn. We're all a part of that same body. So the encouragement today is to get into a church like that. Or if you're in this church, get busy doing what the Lord has called you to do. So today we're going to look at the first provision. You guys get it third. But we're going to look at the very first provision. But it starts, before we get to the provision, is this stem. Okay, there's the teacher coming out in me. The stem, this is the direction for where we're going. This is the opening line of our covenant. It says, we promise by God's grace and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, colon. So what we've done is we, we start with a reminder. We are promising. We are promising this to each other. But our reminder is, is that it's God's grace and His indwelling Spirit that do this in us. And so the very first thing we do is we really orient ourselves. We focus our vision on the fact that this comes from God. His grace is a way of saying all of the things that He's done for us gospel-wise. His indwelling of the Holy Spirit is that extra gift that He didn't have to give, but He gave it to us anyways so that we can follow Him, so we can please Him. So this is where we must start, and you're going to see this over and over again today as I talk, is that we're going to continually return to the gospel, because what happens to us is we forget it, and then we try to do it in our own strength, or we try to earn favor with God, instead of we have favor with God, so we respond accordingly. And so you're going to see that throughout this passage. So here's the actual covenant wording that we're looking at today. You'll notice there are three parts broken up with a comma, and an and. So these three parts we're going to kind of take apart and we're going to look at. And we're going to look at Romans 12 and how Romans 12 shows us these three. And actually there's plenty other places we could have gone in the Bible that show us these three. But here's the first part, or here it is. To live lives in keeping with the truth of the gospel, continually repenting of our sin, and walking by faith in the newness of life. So this is our promise 
to one another. We promise to do these things, to walk in keeping with the truth of the gospel, to continually repent of our sins, and then walk in that newness of life by faith. This is, the, this, is the, this is the reminder we must have. We must constantly remember that Christ has died for us to provide us that we can do these three things. So to summarize this, I, I was reading some, uh, so, uh, a couple books, and I love how the Lord does this. I was talking to my children about this last night, that I'll be getting ready to preach a sermon, and I read the commentaries, and I read the, the, the collections of quotes to find stuff that fits in my sermon. But I'll have picked up a book like months in advance that had nothing to do with my sermon, and I'm just reading along, and the Lord goes, hey, look at this. Hey, look at that. Did you see this? And all of a sudden, there's stuff that I can add to my sermon. So I was reading a book on holiness and obedience. I know, really exciting. I know you guys would like to know the title. Come see me afterwards. Because that's one of those books that you're like, why are you reading that? But I was reading it, and it was phenomenal. And as I was reading it, the author said, I can summarize all of the New Testament on what we're supposed to do with one simple sentence. And I'm like, my, my ears pick up. I'm going, okay, I like this kind of thing. I like summaries. And he said, here is the summary of what it means to be a Christian. Be who you are. And I kind of stopped for a second, and I didn't read on, which is part of the problem. And I went, be who you are? That sounds like more like a commercial. It sounds like maybe the, the, the motto of a Disney movie. That, that kind of sounds like, our world. That sounds heretical. I mean, I thought this was a Christian book, right? I'm looking at the back going, this says Christian, and I know this author. Be who you are. Well, see, the culture does say that, and the culture has taken something that is absolutely true and perverted it just enough to make it not true. Don't they do that all the time? Haven't they done that with every single good gift the Lord has given? People say things like, relax, you're born that way. Or don't try to be who you're not, be you. You be you. They've actually stumbled on something very biblical. See, God does want you to be the real you. As a matter of fact, he does want you to be true to yourself. But he wants you to be true to the self that he is going to build in you by grace, not by who you are by nature. See, when you hear, relax, you were born this way. God says, no, 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 relax. You've been born again this way. It's our nature that must be destroyed and put aside, and the new nature is what we live in. So as a believer, if you are in Christ, you be you. Be the you that God has purchased, that Christ's death on the cross has purchased by his grace. And so today as we look at that, this is the, this is the call for each of you. You be who God has made you to be. And that means you're saved, but there's also the next step, which is he saved you, but he's also given you gifts to utilize here in the church. And you'll see this as we look in Romans. So before we do that, I want to I kind of break this, this covenant apart. The first line, to live lives in keeping with the truth of the gospel. Now our covenant puts a Bible verse with each of these. Uh, they could have put many, but the Bible verse they chose was Galatians 2.14, which is where the apostle Paul talks about a confrontation he had with Peter. You remember Peter had been eating with Gentiles until some Jews showed up, and so the apostle Peter goes, I'm not going to hang out with them, and the apostle Paul calls him on it. And he says, you're not walking with truth of the gospel, not in step with truth of the gospel. And he calls him out to that. And so the very first thing about this covenant is we must be in step with, we must be walking in truth of the gospel. 
And so how I'm going to make this more of a phrase of what we need to think about today is how does God, how does God relate to us? How God relates to us. See, we need to first get how God views us to then respond correctly. Again, we must start with the gospel has provided, so now I can respond. And so this very first line is that the walking in truth of the gospel and step with the gospel is that God is no longer against us. He's for us because of Christ. The second thing we see is it says, continually repenting of sin. Continually repenting of sin. Now, I like to read the Puritans, and the Puritans don't say that. They say, you need to mortify your sin, which means you need to put it to death. You need to kill it. So there's a couple of passages here, and you'll hear that the repenting is kind of a churchy's term that, that we don't really grasp as well as we should. It's a biblical term, but mortification, kill your sin. Listen to Romans 8.13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Colossians 3.5. Put to death, that's the word, mortify, kill it. Therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexually immoral, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. So this mortification of sin is your sin. We're not talking about other people's sins. We're not worrying about them. This is all about you. So this mortification of sin is how I relate to others and how I relate to God. All sin is vertical. Most sins are horizontal as well. And we like to think that if it's just vertical and no one gets hurt, it's not really a sin. But that's not what the Bible says. And so this mortification of sin is how we relate to God and how we relate to others. And then the last part, we see walking by faith in the newness of life. And we see Ephesians 4, 23 and 24. To be renewed in the spirit of our minds, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. We also see Colossians again, Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed after the knowledge, after the image of its creator. And then Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him in baptism in order that Jesus, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So this newness of life is how we see ourselves, how we see who we are now in light of what God's done, in light of our sins, and then who we are in Christ. And so all of these go together, and these are the steps that we're going to take today because it mirrors perfectly what we see in Romans 12, 1 through 16. So if you're not already there in your Bibles or your Bible apps, go ahead and get there. So we're going to break it down like this. We're going to talk about how God relates to us, verse 1. We're going to talk about how to relate to God and others, verse 2, also verses 9 through 16. I'm going to take them out of order. I'll apologize to the Apostle Paul in heaven for using his Bible verses out of order, but he'll, I think he'll understand. And then last, how we view ourselves. And so this is the progression that our covenant takes, and so we're going to follow this progression so that we can kind of track with what it says. So we need to talk for a sec. We're in Romans 12. Romans is a phenomenal book. One author says it's the greatest letter ever written, and I tend to agree with him. Another author calls these the Himalayans of the Bible, as in the high place to go. It's so good, as a matter of fact, that the Apostle Paul wrote a Sparks Notes version, a dumbed-down version called Galatians. 
and a little bit of Ephesians. So he, he had to make it smaller. I don't know if these Romans were varsity Christians or if Paul was just on a go, but whatever he did, he wrote the book of Romans as this masterwork of what it means to be in the gospel and then your response to it. And so for me to start right in Romans 12, I realize we skipped a lot. So I'm going to summarize Romans 1 through 11 as best I can. Romans 1 through 11 is the gospel. It is how the gospel applies to you, what it means for you, your relationship to God, and then chapter 12 through the end of Romans is what we do in response. So if you see the percentages there, two-thirds of the book of Romans is about who we are in Christ, and one-third is how we respond. It's interesting, I think we as believers probably flip those over, don't we? And we think about, here's all the things you have to do to be a Christian. Oh yeah, and there's a few things over here to believe. Paul looks at it exactly opposite. And I think the reason for this is that we are never to get past the gospel. The gospel is where we must reside. We are to bask in it. We're to dwell in it. We're to soak in the gospel. And that makes the 12 through 16 of Romans a lot easier to do because it's in response to how great a love he's given us. So here we go. How God relates to us, starting in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So this very first line, I appeal to you, therefore. The word therefore means because of everything that I've said before. So Paul is saying, because you guys are all familiar with Romans 1 through 11, this is your response. This is the way you should respond. And then specifically, I think Paul is tying this all the way back to Romans 1.16, where he says, the, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and the Greek also. So this power is what he's saying. Tap into this power. This is where we get the ability to do the things that he's about to say. This gospel includes God's love, his grace, his mercy, his righteousness, his gift of faith, and the list can go on and on and on. This is a call to action. Paul is saying, I've explained to you the gospel, now we're going to get about going out and sharing it. Now we're going to get about living it out. And that's what I'm tasked with today, is talking about how do we live this out. By the mercies of God. Notice here, it's by the mercy of God, not the wrath of God. Now, we as Christians understand that if it were not for Christ and His covering, the wrath of God is pouring out on us completely. And that is a place we do not want to be. So we have a healthy fear of God's wrath, but we recognize that Christ has diverted it. He has taken it in our place. And so our response is not one of fear, but our response is one of gratitude. Believers rightly feel, fear God's wrath, but we don't have to feel God's wrath. This idea of mercies is kind of a summary term. It means everything that he's covered before. So when Paul says, because the mercies of God, he's saying, because of the gospel. He's saying, because of everything that I've covered before, this is the way to respond. John Stott says, indeed, the gospel is precisely God's mercy to inexcusable and undeserving sinners in giving his son to die for them, and justifying them freely, in sending his spirit and making him his children. This is what the gospel is. You have been adopted in. You are now in Christ. And because of that, you get all the benefits that Christ gets. 
Next, we see he says, present your bodies as living sacrifices. This is an interesting way to put this. Living sacrifices. So living things that are put to death or living dead things. It's an interesting parallel here. I wonder if Paul's thinking of the idea of take up your cross, die daily, take up your cross. That kind of a picture could be. One poet says, if we do not die to ourselves, we cannot live to God, and he does not live to God, is dead. This idea of if we're not dying to self, we're not truly alive. Another way to take this, this living sacrifice could be that, hey, we're, we're not going to die for our sins. It's already been taken by the one who is still living. Christ took the penalty of our sins died and rose again. He is still living. We have been sacrificed for. Then we get these nice, these, these phrase here, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. That word acceptable means pleasing. It, it means holy and pleasing to God. It means that we can now make God happy. We can make him feel something when we adore him. See, worship is not what we do right before the preacher gets up. Worship is not a style, a genre of music. Worship's a lifestyle. All of life is meant to be worship. Because worship is adoring the one who is worthy. And that's what we are to do. And that's what this is talking about. Our lives, when we devote them to the Lord and we adore Him continuously, are holy and pleasing to Him. And don't miss the gospel behind this. See, we don't have to be holy and pleasing to God because it earns us the right to go to heaven. We don't have to be holy and pleasing to God so that we can kind of trick Him that we're not as bad as our neighbor. We are holy and pleasing to God because He has provided the means that we can do that. You see, we cannot please God apart from Jesus Christ as our propitiation, as our sacrifice for us. And so, again, we return to the gospel because praise be to God that God does not see us as enemies anymore if we're in Christ. Instead, He sees us as if we are adopted children and we get all the rights that Christ so rightly deserves. So that's the first part. We see how God relates to us, how God sees us if we're in Christ. Part two is how we relate to God and others, how we relate to God and others. Starting in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good, acceptable, and perfect. This idea of conformed means to to be a certain way on the outside that you aren't on the inside. This implies the idea of a masquerade or or acting of some sort. Spurgeon says, there's nothing worse for a church to be conformed to this world. We don't want to look like the world. We want to be different than the world. Notice it says, do not be conformed, but be transformed. That word transform in the Greek is the word metamorphosis, which is the word we use for when the butterfly comes out of its chrysalis. This is a worm to a butterfly. This is from a belly dweller to something that soars. So there are two ways to view the world. There's God's way to view the world, and there's the world's way to view the world. There's no other option. Spurgeon again, and I have, this is too good, I have to share it. Never dream that you can be pardoned and then be allowed to live exactly like you did before. The very wish to return to your previous life means that you are still under condemnation. That's a pretty hard truth to hear. 
butterfly that wants to go back to being the caterpillar is not really a butterfly yet, is he? He hasn't experienced the soaring. See, the, the renewing of our minds is what we need. We need to be put into the mold that God has for us, not the mold of the world. As a matter of fact, Philip's translation says that. It says, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Instead, let God mold you. Get in God's mold. So that way, we can live the life we're supposed to. You know, it, it's really easy here to say, yes, the Spirit is to do this in us. And we kind of just sit back and go, okay, Spirit, do it. And we wait. But in actuality, there's still action required from us. We still need to take the steps forward. The Spirit's going to be ultimately the one that provides it, but there are means by which we need to start taking steps forward to be able to have this transforming of our mind. And the number one way to do that is get in the Word. Your mind is renewed by the Word. You know, it's the, it's the start of a new school year here in a week or so. It's also time we're kicking off men's and women's Bible studies where life groups are getting going again. We've got adult Bible studies. We've got all sorts of things to get involved in. Get in and study. Let your minds be renewed. And then look what it says. Your your mind has been renewed so that you can discern the will of God. You will know what God's plan is in all of this. Like Tim said, God's not surprised by any of this. And he wants to share with you what he's doing. And he's communicated it to you in a book. Get in it. Not only that, but it says he wants you to see his good, acceptable, and perfect. What is good, acceptable, and perfect? Acceptable, again, is that word pleasing. Perfect means complete. So these, these are the words of the Old Testament, those sacrifices that were made for the sins of the nation of Israel. And we see this goal is there. This goal is attainable in Christ. See, the aim of the gospel is not to get truths in us, It's also not to look a certain way. Those are very true, and those happen. But the aim of the gospel is to get God in you. It's to be more like God. It's to be in touch with your Savior. It's to be in touch with the one who died for you. And the first way we do this is we repent. We turn away from the sins. We will not be conformed to this world. We will look nothing like it. And now we turn to verses 9 through 13. Notice here, 9 through 13, they're all other focused. There's a lot of others involved here. You'll see that, first of all, you have to love somebody. You can't, it's, this isn't love of self, this is love of other. You're going to see one another several times, and you're going to see hospitality rounding out the section. All of this section is the horizontal. It's not just the relationship with God, but it's the horizontal relationship as well. Let's read it. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So this list is pretty impressive. This is a list of things I would like for people to do towards me. This idea of doing these towards each other is huge. But for some, it's not quite big enough. How are we going to change the world if all we're doing is loving our neighbor? How are we going to change the world if I'm outdoing each of you trying to show honor or being patient with you or showing hospitality to strangers? That doesn't seem like it's going to change the direction our country's going. It doesn't seem like it's going to change the direction our world's going. 
As a matter of fact, it doesn't seem very big at all. But here's the thing is that God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Remember who Jesus went and got. He didn't get the pick of the litter. He got the runt black sheep of the litter and brought them up. And praise be to God, because many of us are that, right? So I found an example of this from one of the best books written in the last hundred years, and that's from The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. And this is what Gandalf says. Gandalf is the gray wizard, and he's talking about Sauron, a wizard who is flirting with the, the bad side. And he says, Sauron believes that only great power that can hold evil in check. That's my Gandalf impression. That is not what I've found. I have found that it's the small things, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keeps the darkness at bay. Simple acts of kindness and love are what will defeat evil. So this statement is absolutely biblical. See, God's kingdom does not start from the top down. It starts from the bottom up. It starts from those house churches hiding in China and growing and growing and seeing more and more influence. And their story's not done yet. It starts with believers huddling in an upper room that then, within two decades, have turned the world upside down. And that's being acknowledged by the Romans. That's not being acknowledged by Christians trying to spin it. See, the world is turned upside down by the mundane. The world is turned upside down by the simple, by the love of the other. And so as we look at this Romans 12 passage here, this is a picture of Christ. All Paul is doing, and, and I'm, right now I'm studying, looking forward to the fall, and I've been studying the Beatitudes. All Paul is doing is painting us a picture of what Jesus is like. Jesus' love is genuine. He abhors evil. He held fast to what is good. He loved everybody with a brotherly affection. And on and on it goes. And so when we do the mundane loving, we look just like our Savior. So this entire time, he is the head, and we are looking just like the head. And you'll notice that if we started doing that, this place, these, these, this church, remember the church is the body of Christ, not just this building, but the Christians in our world as the, the worldwide church, if we started doing this, this is a pocket of heaven. Because this is what heaven's going to look like. Because this is what we're going to be. We're all going to look like Jesus in heaven. And so this is an opportunity for us to make these little embassies of the kingdom here on earth. And this is how he says to do it. First he says, we must have genuine love. This is not gutting it out and going, I'm going to love you. Okay. Instead, this is overflowing love. Well, you're like, but I don't love that person. But look where Paul says that love comes from. Romans 5.5, 5, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So God pours his love into us, and that love spills out onto everybody around us. That's the love we're to have. This word genuine is the word ahippokritos, or ahippocrites. In Greek, you put the letter A in front of something, it means the opposite of. So you have a theist, means they believe in God. An atheist, not believing in God. Somebody who's a gnosis, believes in knowledge, and an agnosis, or agnostic, is no knowledge. So this is a ahippokratos, a non-hypocrite. Hypocrites were the name for actors. They were not necessarily held in high esteem in this world at this time. But the actor here is playing something that is not real. So love must be real. 
It's not to be theater. It's to be real. You know, when we think about it, this love being genuine, we, we realize that we need to look and see where we were when Christ chose to love us. Were we intrinsically lovable? Had we done anything of value to earn his love? As a matter of fact, we were unlovable. We were unattractive. We couldn't, we couldn't do anything right. And then he came in and made us attractive. He came in and made us lovable. So if we were to get this on an individual level, if we were to get this part of the gospel and we were to be in step with the gospel and living it out, we would realize when we're serving all the unattractive people, and I'm not talking about beauty and looks, I'm saying people that you don't want to be around because of personality, if we started serving the unattractive the way Christ served us and thought in our minds, oh my God, you loved me when I was so unattractive. And you were murdered and tortured on my behalf when I was that unattractive. You made me attractive. And I just am having a hard time spending a couple hours with this person who's unattractive. God forbid that I be that way. Because ultimately my love must be genuine. And it comes from that pouring out in my heart. So this overwhelming love. Remember, it's based on God's grace and His Holy Spirit living in us. So that we can love the unlovable. And the list goes on. Paul likes his lists. He says, hate evil. I love that love starts and then followed by evil. But the the hate of the evil is saying, I am so close to you. I am so love with you, right with you, that when something bad happens to you, I'm going to fight it. I'm going to hate it. I'm going to want it dead because it's hurting my love. It's hurting the one I care about. And I'm going to cling to what is good. I'm going to bring good things in so that we both can experience it. So that the one that I love is experiencing it. We're to cling to each other like glue and loathe and and push away all that would hurt each other. It says love brotherly. This is the word where we get Philadelphia from. It means the love of the brothers or sisters. It's It's a familial love. Then we see show honor. Not just love each other, but honor. You can say, I love that person, but I don't like them. This is not what it means. It means you love them, and you're going to try to outdo honoring them. It's the exact opposite of gossiping. It's the exact opposite of putting down. It's lifting up. Then it says, be zealous. I love that word. It means to glow white hot. Be fervent and serve the Lord. We are to be so overwhelmed with the, the Spirit in us that it just can't help but come out of us. Then it says, contribute to the needs. This means we're being willing to share. And then he finishes with hospitality. And the word Philadelphia, again, I told you guys, is brotherly love. This is philoxenia, which means love the stranger, love the alien. This means love the outsider. And it doesn't just say practice hospitality. It says pursue it, chase it down. See, this is the picture of Christ. We walk through this. This was Christ. I mean, he did this in his lifetime here, and he is now wanting us to do that as well. And praise be to God, he's given us the ability and the strength to do that. We show these things, we show off the gospel. Paul continues, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Again, notice how much of this is all outward focus. Every single bit. Outward, outward, outward. The very first one. Bless those who persecute you. 
Literally, bless those who want you gone. Bless those who want you not around anymore. This is so anti-worldly. It's so foreign. The world says, glom on to the people that are like you. Push away those other. The Bible says, no, don't push away those other. Welcome the other in. The next one, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Here is, here is Paul saying, it's okay to feel. It's okay to feel here amongst our church. People in this room right now have things to be joyful about. People have things to be weeping about. And we should be feeling that together. We should be sharing that with each other. Don't be afraid to feel. So many times we let past hurts get in the way. And they stop us from feeling what others are feeling. But we've been given a green light here. Feel what others are feeling and take it to the Lord. Live in harmony. The Greek, trans, Greek words are literally think the same things as the other. So this is live in harmony. We're going to be thinking the same way. Now this doesn't mean we agree on everything, but we all have the same starting point, which is, verse 2, a renewed mind, a transformed mind. We have so much in common, we can work together in harmony. And then lastly, do not think highly of yourself, but be wise in Jesus, in God's sight. See, Jesus was absolutely about fraternizing with people that were different than him. As a matter of fact, every single person was different than him. And yet, he made his home here, and he went to the lowly. He calls us to do the same. He frees us up to do that, to be able to care for those who can't care for themselves. So we see how God views us. Praise be to God that it's through the gospel. We see what we're supposed to do with our sin for others and to him. And now, how do we view ourselves? How do we relate to ourselves? And we're going to go back up to verse 3. For by the grace given to me, when I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, in service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So there's two temptations when we view ourselves and we, we, we think about how to relate to ourselves. We like to think, think too highly of ourselves and we like to think too lowly of ourselves. And many of us would probably say the first one is the one that we have the biggest problem with. But I'm going to show you that actually it's both, and we need to have a correct balance. So, not too highly of ourselves. Paul makes this pretty clear when he says, do not think too highly of yourselves. Think with sober judgment. See, the right thinking here starts way back in Romans 11.35, when it says you cannot earn the gift of the gospel. So we cannot think, hey, you know what? The reason I'm here on Sunday and the reason I'm a Christian is because God said, i got to have him on my team. That's not the way it works. We are all wretches. We are not competing for who's best, if we were to be honest. If honestly, we were saying the truth is that we're competing for who's the worst. We're not outdoing each other with honor. We're outdoing each other with sin. And so we need to recognize that that's who we are outside of Christ. That's the sober judgment he's talking about. Sober judgment just simply means sound judgment. Recognizing, like 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, is that we are nothing apart from Christ. This leads to humility. 
I will not be able to think too highly of myself if my eyes are on Christ. Every one of us, though, receives gifts from the Lord. And we like to think that those gifts make us higher than we should be. But we are all part of the same body. And I love this language. We are many members in one body. And every single member has a part. If you think too highly of yourself, you might say, well, I should be an eye and not an appendix. I should be a big toe, not an armpit hair. I couldn't think of another body part to say that was kind of maybe not one you'd choose. My mother-in-law's laughing, so that's good. Um, so we have all these, we have all these members, and, and we vie for it, but if we see where we are and we see who we are in Christ, then we will be humble, and we will not think too highly of ourselves, recognizing that every single member contributes something, which goes right into the next point, which is we can't think too lowly of ourselves. Many times we look at it and we go, well, I, I can't get up there and preach. I can't get up there and play as good as Jordan. I can't do these things. So I have nothing to offer. That's not what Paul allows us to do here. Instead, Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. The word gift and grace are actually the same root word. So you could say the gifts that are gifted to us or the grace that has been graced to us. But what Paul's doing here is he's attaching them together with our salvation. The free gift of salvation that he has given each and every one of us came with accompanying gifts. And for some of us, we unwrapped the big gift, but we've left all the other gifts under the tree. And those gifts are gifts that we are meant to share amongst our members, amongst the church. We are to share these with each other. So I say, don't think too lowly of your gifts. Yes, some of them are public. Prophecy, which means preaching. Teaching, which is what we see in our Bible studies. Exhorting, which is where you call somebody to do something. Those are public, and yes, those are up front, but those are only just a tiny little bit. If it, was a, if it was an iceberg, it's the very tip. The real service is done by the people that are not up front. It's the tech crews. It's the cleaning. It's the janitorial. It's the one who goes and visits people when they can't get out. It's the phone calls. It's the one who licks stamps and mails things. These are all a part of the service, all a part of gifts. And Paul says it here, he says, there are non-public gifts such as service, contributing, leading, showing mercy. So these are all gifts, and when we take one of those gifts away, we are hurting the body. So how do we know what gifts we have? Well, first, ask the Lord. It says at the very beginning of our, of our covenant, by grace and the indwelling of the Spirit, if you have been saved by grace and you are in Christ, those gifts are there, you just got to look for them. Remembering they come from God. Second, you're probably already using them somewhere else. Many times people have gifts and they just, they're using them somewhere else. Maybe it's in a neighborhood. Maybe it's in a community group. Maybe it's with your family. You have the gifts. You know, we, we have elders here at the church. We don't give them the elder title and then they start doing elderly things. That's the good, the elderly things as in like elders, not just old people, Sorry. But the elders are doing the caring. They're doing the shepherding already. And all we do is we come along and we give them a title. That's the same thing when it comes to serving in the church. Each of you have gifts. Every single person in this room could potentially push a vacuum cleaner. You could do anything. And so don't, 
Don't go take a spiritual gift inventory. Look at what you're already doing and say, how can I do this to bless the church? And then remembering ultimately, these gifts that God has given us are to mirror Christ. See, Christ came and made himself nothing so that we could gain everything. And so when we use our gifts, we are to show that we're nothing apart from the grace of God. And we do that by how we serve. See, we're not to be spectators, but participants with Christ. This means not only in our relationship with God, but also with our relationship with each other. Our covenant is here to remind us of that. I mean, think about this picture. Love that is sincere, discerning, affectionate, respectful. It is both enthusiastic and patient, generous and hospitable, benevolent and sympathetic, harmonious and full of humility. If we looked like this, our churches would be much more happy and they would be a light to our world that is sorely in need of light. So here's our covenant one more time. We promise by God's grace and through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to live lives in keeping with the truth of the gospel, continually repenting of our sin and walking by faith in the newness of life. Wouldn't it be beautiful and amazing if our church was like this? It does not happen by accident. It comes by first embracing the gospel individually, then corporately, and then living it out together and showing it to each other. Let's not settle for crawling on our bellies. Let's soar. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and that we can come together and learn and hear from you right here and right now. You are a great God that did not leave us alone to figure it out on our own. He did not leave us to our own devices to try to earn your favor. But before our great, great grandparents were even born, you had us on your mind. And you took our sins to that cross in our place. And then you didn't just leave it there. You sent the helper, your spirit, to come and live in us so that we could show you off to the world. And I pray, Lord, that we would do that. I pray that we would overflow with your love and that that love would spill out not only onto each other here in the church, but to our community. And that, Lord, you would turn this church right here into an embassy for the kingdom that people would run to because there is life and there is light and there is hope here. We can only do that, Lord, if we are reflecting you. So please help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.